Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today I will be speaking with Christina Jones, PhD, RN, about her experiences with the patient diary as well as the ICU patient diary network. Dr. Jones is a retired nurse consultant in critical care rehabilitation in the ICU at Whiston Hospital in Prescott, UK, and honorary reader at the University of Liverpool's Institute of Aging and Chronic Disease. She's now also the research manager for the support group charity ICU Steps. I would like to first of all welcome Dr. Jones to the uh, Critical Care Podcast and to thank her for participating. I think this is a very important topic, especially now that we are um, discussing more and more about uh, post-critical illness syndrome. And this is a technology that uh, sounds extremely interesting and she has a lot of experiences with it and I would love to be able to share that with our audience. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Yeah, maybe we could start by um, uh, having you speak to us about uh, the uh, manifestations of uh, PTSD, the statistics involved in survivors of critical illness with PTSD. Okay, um, it varies depending on which study you look at. And I think also with which patient group within the ICU. But generally, if you look at a general ICU population, you're probably talking about somewhere around 13 to 15% of patients will have the full diagnosis of PTSD. And, and maybe a smaller percentage will have some of the symptoms and may still need some help. If you look at uh, other patient groups like um, ARDS patients, then the percentage may be higher, around 25%. And one of the major problems for most patients with these, these kinds of symptoms is um, recurrent nightmares or flashbacks of the experience of being in intensive care. And that experience may not be the real experience. It may actually be delusional memories such as nightmares or hallucinations, paranoid delusions of, of nurses or doctors trying to kill them. So it, it is quite challenging to, to help patients come through the other side. And that is one of the reasons why experts like you have started using ICU patient diaries. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of this. So the, the diaries have been used very widely in Scandinavia. And depending on who you speak to, Norway say they started it and Denmark say they started it and then Sweden will say. But, but basically, somewhere around the beginning of 1990, there was a nurse called Carl Beckman in um, Norrköping in Sweden who was doing diaries and then thought, well, maybe we could add photographs to these diaries so that patients could actually see where they were and see it was really them that was that was actually in the ICU, um, really to fill in the, the memory gaps that patients have. And he, he, he started doing these diaries and then he got enough patients together that he'd done diaries with and he, he had a poster at a European Congress where my boss, Professor Griffiths at that point, um, saw the poster, thought this is a fantastic idea and brought the information back to me in the UK uh, because I couldn't attend that meeting. And I arranged to go see Carl in Sweden and followed his protocol for doing the diaries. And um, we got together as an informal group, really. Initially in the ICU, he came over, he spoke to all the nurses, and we got the group going. 
And really, it went from strength to strength after that. And we, as a group, got other people joining in and decided to look at the impact of ICU diaries on um, post-traumatic stress disorder during the patient's recovery uh, in a randomised control trial. And, and that's the point at which we discovered that we really could have an effect on the incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder. Sounds great. How prevalent would you say this practice is nowadays in the UK? In the UK, it's increasing all the time. If you actually go on the ICU diary um, website, it doesn't actually look like there's loads and loads of centres in the UK because not everybody has put themselves on the MAH website. But um, when I speak at meetings and I ask people if they're doing diaries, usually a good three quarters of the hands will actually go up in the in the audience. So I know that, that it is fairly widespread across the UK now. Sounds great. Maybe we could discuss the various types of ICU patient diaries. And I just wanted to clarify one thing for our audience. There's the, you know, the, the, the concept we all know of a personal diary where somebody writes in a diary. And these ICU yes. patient diaries are actually different. Yes, because basically the patient isn't contributing to the diary unless they're awake enough and choose to be able to write. Basically, the diary is being kept by, uh, it will be started by the nursing staff and then be contributed really by anybody who comes to visit the patient, uh, family members and, and close friends. Uh, but also the nurses and physiotherapists, doctors, if you can persuade them to do it, and um, anybody that, that really is involved in the care of the patients so that you can get a different perspective. And it's, it's, I think it's particularly important to get everybody involved because their interaction will, with the patient will be completely different. There should be something written every day. Even if it's just their condition hasn't changed, for example, over that 24 hours, because that at least gives the patient the idea of what happened while they weren't able to understand what was going on, if they're deeply sedated or whatever. The, the photographs that we take, we normally do at the start of the patient's stay when we start the diary and then at points of change. So if they, for example, have a tracheostomy, then you will take a photograph at that point. Now, some people, their diaries don't include photographs because they haven't been able to clear it with their um, hospital. Um, and that doesn't just apply to the UK, but across other uh, European countries. And for some units also, they haven't been able to actually get permission to, for the nurses to write. And so they encourage the relatives to keep a diary and um, and make it as detailed as possible. So it, it varies with different centres exactly how they're doing these diaries. What is happening certainly now in uh, the UK, there is a move towards designing an app f for um, both Android phones and for uh, Apple phones that would allow everybody to contribute to the same diary. And certainly younger patients would probably find that much more acceptable than a handwritten diary. Wow, that, that is really interesting. I don't personally have any experience with ICU patient diaries, but from the various articles that I was reading, it sounds like there are a few different models. So, for example, some centers have the nurse be the primary um, notary of the events. Others do ask for input from other healthcare team members or the family, and... 
it sounds like certain centers actually draw the line at that. Some, some, some centers include photos, some centers do not include photos. And it sounds like yeah. you place an emphasis on having a daily contribution as well. So that, that, that's very interesting to me. Um, I wanted to ask you about something else. I, I was reading about how some, some, some places make sure that the diary is written in loose leaf form so that certain events could be edited out for medical legal reasons or for, you know, worries about psychological impact if necessary. Um, and others mention how it's very useful for the patient to actually have a physical, you know, bound piece of documentation. So when you just now were talking about this phone app, it made me wonder, you know, is that actually a detriment or is that a, um, you know, advancement of this technique? Do you have any feelings about this? Well, it, it, you could actually add videos to, um, to a phone app, um, in a way that you can't with a, with a physical paper diary with just, you know, printed out photographs. So if you wanted, for example, to uh, record the noise of um, an ICU so that a patient would be able to understand, well, these, these things that uh, I keep repeating in my, in my nightmare, they were actually just alarms that were keeping me safe. Mm. Um, so there is a potential to actually extend the whole way of doing diaries, but it would need, and, and certainly um, ICU Steps, the charity I'm involved with, are the, the group that are designing the app. And we feel that it would need considerable research to actually look at the impact of, of taking this next step on how patients cope with having a diary. Right. Oh, that is very interesting. Um, I would love to know what you guys come up with. Um, another difference is a retrospective diary versus a prospective. It seems like retrospective yes. diaries are, are really not that useful if it's just a recollection of the uh, various medical events. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to write retrospective diaries. I, I have on occasions where a patient has missed out on a diary and is really desperate to have one, but it means going through both the medical notes and the nursing notes um, and, and getting as much out of them as you can about um, not only what was happening to the patient, but the way the patient was um, behaving themselves. So if they seem to be hallucinating, you really be, need to be recording that in the actual diary. And that can be quite difficult to, to tease out from the, um, from the medical notes or the nursing notes. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about the impact of this. You're one of the experts in this area. There have been a few studies trying to sort out whether this is efficacious or not. Maybe you could um, help us summarize this. So there was a small randomized controlled trial that looked at anxiety and depression, and that showed an impact on anxiety and depression. It, it reduced the incidence with, uh, with patients having diaries. Um, our own randomized control trial was a much bigger study, and um, we actually found that we could reduce the incidence down from 13% down to 5% of PTSD. Uh, for those patients who were receiving the diary, their incidence was 5%. So there was quite a dramatic change. There, have been, um, there was a, a study done in France um, that also showed that the symptom level was reduced, and that went right out to a year 
post-ICU, whereas our randomised controlled trial was only three months. And again, they saw an advantage. They saw a lower level of, of symptoms in in those patients that had a diary and also their relatives. So there is quite a lot of, of research, but there still needs to be further, particularly if we're going to go on and develop different ways of doing diaries. Yeah, I, I think it's really impressive that it decreases PTSD in both the patient's and their family members. And that is such a powerful tool because yes. we are now all realizing that, well, this has a huge impact on patients and their families' quality of life. So, yeah, I think this is so powerful. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. So, you know, people generate this diary. It could have photos. Maybe it has video clips. How do people share this with the patient and their family members? How, how does the debriefing occur? And do you have opinions about, you know, the optimal way to get this done? I don't stick, I didn't stick to a, a set time to actually go through the, the diary with the patient. Obviously, for the study, we had to stick to a, a set time. But um, clinically, when you're working with a patient and their families, it, it you really get the sense this patient is ready. And they're actually asking for the diary once they know it's there. And that could be in the ICU before they even leave to go to the ward so they can they can have the diary and they can continue it afterwards if they want to. Or it could be once they go to the ward. Um, certainly we had we had an established clinic. We had um, follow up services, which I was running. So I would go and see a patient on the ward and um, tell them they had the diary and then at that point, if they wanted to go through it, then I would go through it with them. And really the whole process is to sit down and make sure they understand exactly what's in the photographs and they can choose whether they have the photographs because they're not united with the diary until you actually go through it with the patient. Oh, uh, and also, yeah, you can keep those aside because sometimes the photographs are the bit that people find difficult to to cope with sometimes it's the writing and sometimes it's what the family have written so it will vary with different patients and really it's just being sensitive um, to how they're responding and and reacting at the time if they seem to be getting distressed then we can break off and you know go back to it the next day it doesn't have to be done all at the same time but that's only if you've got the, the luxury of a follow-up service. If you haven't got a follow-up service, it is much more difficult um, because it's finding somebody who has the time to sit down with the patient and go through it. Some people do it in, in clinic if, um, if they're calling patients back for a, for a medical clinic, then they will go through the diary at the same time. It, it varies, obviously, with how each ICU is set up and what services they have available. But it should always be at a point where that patient is comfortable with going through it. And if they're not comfortable, then you can keep it. You should keep it for up to a year because for some patients, they will come to that year point and start thinking about their time in ICU and start thinking about the fact they had a diary. And they will then come back and say, um, have you still got that diary? Mm. So if you haven't got it, then you're really stuck. So we keep it for a year and then we will remind patients at that point, send out a letter saying, we've still got your diary. If you're interested, get in touch and we'll, we'll make sure that you get your diary. 
And then again, we'll go through that process of actually sitting down and making sure they understand everything in the diary. Mm -hmm. What would you say the average amount of time is that your institution spends in the process of going through the diary and sharing the events and processing the events? Um, I would think going going through the diary with the with the patient, usually it's no longer than about 20 minutes. Unless that patient gets quite distressed and you have to go back the next day to give them chance to sort of cope with it. But that's a minority. Most you'll be able to answer all their questions, go through everything, and it will only take around 20 minutes. Is the family or, you know, spouse present during this debriefing? Do you bring them in at a later date? Um, if we can, we'll organize that the family is there. But quite often, the patient needs to sort of see the relative stuff what the relatives have written before the family have. And really, you know, the family already know what's in the diary because they've read it every single day. Uh, and they will often have clarified things that they've read in the diary with the bedside nurse. So they have a much better understanding of what's in the diary than, than the patient does. So I personally didn't always organize for a family member to be there unless the patient requested it. Right. So it, really, the family already know what's gone on. Right. And it is the, the patient that needs that information. I didn't think about that. That actually improves the daily communication with the family as well to have a diary because they can look at that written page and, yeah. like you said, uh, gain a sense of what actually happened that day compared to what they just see, you know, like in, in a snapshot when they go by the patient's bedside. Yes, yes. And also, if they've been... Um, for example, there's been a, a, a family meeting where the, the doctor has told them things. Well, the nurse can come back and, and summarize that family meeting, as well as obviously talking it through with the relatives. But they can read it again uh, and clarify things, because quite often when, when relatives are, are very stressed, they don't remember what they've been told anyway. So it's quite a useful tool for just reinforcing, you know, this is what's happening with the patient at the moment. Yes, that's great. I wanted to ask you another question in terms of your experience debriefing patients. Entries in the diary that are strictly medical, you know, for example, today you got a tracheostomy, today you got a new antibiotic, versus today you had a hard time, you were agitated, maybe even some introspective or reflective notes about things like that. Have you found a difference in patients' reactions to strictly medical entries, you know, fact-based versus more reflective notes? I'm not really aware of that because, because our diaries are often a sort of mixture of both the medical and the, the reflective stuff. That nurses, once they get the writing style, because it is a very different writing style from, for example, writing a, a nursing uh, report, about a patient it's it's much more of a style of addressing the patient directly talking to them about what's been going on that day but also about the nurse's um, sense of what's ha what's happening for that patient internally as well so it's a very different style of writing uh, and it does take a little bit of practice but so when you read through a diary with the patient quite often you've got a mixture of, of medical versus the, the more sort of intuitive stuff all in on the same day. 
Um, it's difficult to separate out the reaction. Personally, my feeling is actually the the bits that the hardest for the for the patients are what the family write, uh, and particularly where family have been quite distressed and have written how distressed they were. Some people feel that that's not something that we should be taxing the patient with, but quite honestly, the patient doesn't have to understand what the relative has been through um, for them to eventually be able to talk about it. Right. And quite often the the patient can't really sort of, because they, they have no lived experience quite often, they can't really understand just how distressed their families were. Right. So in a way, that's actually extremely useful, one yeah. would argue. Yes, I, I think so, completely. Well, you know, that that discussion actually leads me to the next question I want to ask you, which is the impact of this diary writing on that ICU nurse that's by the bedside. What is the additional you know, burden of work that's placed on that particular nurse, but also what is the psychological impact and the, you know, quality of that work life on that particular person? And is there any effect, either positive or negative, on that person's potential for professional burnout? I think as far as the extra workload is concerned, um, it's starting a diary that takes the longest time because you try and do a summary of what brought the patient into ICU, and that can be quite lengthy, and you take the initial photograph. But daily entry probably only takes a couple of minutes, um, so that, that isn't a big workload. It is that beginning bit. I think as far as writing in a diary, certainly from my sense, talking to bedside nurses, is they get a sense of being able to talk to the patient directly in a way that they can't do if they're, if they're sedated and, and also put some of their feeling in about what's happening to the patients, about how that patient is reacting. So in a way, it's a positive benefit rather than a rather than negative benefit. Obviously, if you're very busy, though, and you can't start a diary, then you can maybe have a sense of, a slight sense of failure if, if it's something that you really believe in, that you didn't get around to starting the diary that day. But there's always the next day. You can always catch up on days that you weren't able to write. What is the uh, feedback you've received from various nurses that you've talked to? Have they seen this as a positive addition to well number one their work and number two the effect on the patients when we first started it did take a little while for the nurses to really come on board and and start to understand where we were going with doing diaries but because we ran the clinic we would always encourage patients and their families to come back and visit the ICU and if possible see the the nurse that looked after them most of the time while they were in the unit and as part of that, patients would say, and I, and I had my diary and I saw that you wrote in it and I felt really special because you took the time to actually write about what was happening to me and address me directly. And there was an extra level of care that I felt that you provided. So they got the positive reinforcement really from the patients rather than from me saying to you, you should do this because it's really good for the patient. It was those patients coming back and saying, 
this was something really special that you did for me. So it took a while for that to really sort of filter through. But gradually, the nurses really felt that it was it was a valuable thing that they were doing. Oh, that's really nice. I think that's really nice to get that feedback and to have that serve as a positive reinforcement. Yeah. That's really actually quite inspiring. My next question for you is, it sounds like you... You, you do run a clinic for patients who have survived their critical illness. What is the current state of managing post-critical critical illness syndrome in the UK? There was a, a, a set of guidelines produced by the um, National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the, in the UK, and um, they were published quite a long time ago now, but increasingly the units are being tested their accreditation uh, is based on how they adhere to the NICE guidance. And so as part of that guidance, they are supposed to be following up on patients, making sure that they're checking both the physical, psychological and cognitive recovery, and if necessary, referring people on for help. So so that is increasingly being applied across the UK. Uh, and therefore, I think that this is one of the reasons why ICU diaries have become much more popular because they can be seen as as a move towards helping patients after um, they leave the ICU. That's great. Well, maybe I could get you to tell us more about a couple of organizations that you are very much involved in, the ICU Patient Diary Network. Yeah, the Diary Network really sort of came out of a European meeting where there was a group of us who were doing diaries. We, we had dinner together, basically, and we're just chatting about what we could do to encourage people to do diaries. And Peter Nadal, who's a, a nurse, an ICU nurse in Germany, he is very um, technically orientated and he offered to start a website if we would come forward with information that we had from our end, different articles, things like, for example, our protocol in, in writing diaries. And so, I mean, it's really been driven on the website point by Peter Nadal, because if you'd asked me to write it, I probably would never have got round to it because I don't have the technical ability. But uh, but he has, and he produces a regular newsletter that we all contribute to and he keeps the map up to date of who's doing diaries where and consequently that network has really grown of people that we know are actually doing doing diaries and I I know recently I was contacted by a nurse in Chile who was interested in starting diaries and I managed to organize for her to spend some time in Sweden working with Carl Beckman to actually understand writing diaries and actually sitting down and going with the diary going through the diaries with the patient so it's it's very much an informal network but it is becoming a very useful tool for um helping people to start off the diary process because it can seem quite daunting when you first start to think about how am i going to start this process oh it sounds like a great resource can you share with our audience the url for your organization uh, yes, it's www.icu-diary.org. Beautiful. Thank you. And uh, tell us more about the um, ICU STEPS organization. Yeah, that that actually started from a follow-up service in Milton Keynes in the UK, which is just outside London. And um, the follow-up nurse there, Mo Pescott, 
thought that it might be helpful to get patients and family members together as a group and talk about how they felt that we could offer more help to the patients and families. And consequently, in 2005, they had their first drop-in meeting with tea and coffee and very informal. And patients and family members and some of the staff could sit down in little groups and just talk about their experience with other people who had been through the same uh, experience. And really, that that's how it started. But then... They registered it as a charity, ICU Steps, and very gradually it's grown. I myself was involved in setting up the um, Merseyside and Cheshire group before I left, uh, before I retired. And um, there are now something like 21 support groups around the UK. And we increasingly we're having requests from people uh, outside the UK to actually start support groups. And the whole idea is just in an informal setting. Get a sort of little drop in. It can be in a cafe. It can be in a church hall. It, it definitely shouldn't be in the hospital wherever possible. Um, because for some patients, obviously, coming back to the hospital can be a challenge. Mm. And um, just sitting down over a cup of coffee and just discussing with other people how they feel their recovery is going. And as as you get patients who've come through that and are sort of really sort of attending, they're the, the sort of expert patient, basically. They're helping other patients who are newer in their recovery work through the problems that they have. Uh, and that's the whole idea. And now, because it has grown so much, we get a lot of requests for people who, who are doing research, who want feedback from patients and families to see whether they think that the, the research that they're doing is important and being done in the right way. And, and consequently, that's why I became the research manager, really, to, to coordinate that. So it is definitely growing. And it's becoming international versus being yes. a UK yes. organization. That's wonderful. It yep. sounds like a great resource for patients as well as researchers interested in this area. Yeah, yeah. And what is the URL for this organization? So that's www.icusteps.org. Great. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a very illuminating conversation for myself about how ICU patient diaries work, the, the different models of writing one, its impact on both the patients and families as well as the healthcare personnel. And it sounds like there is some uh, research funding supporting that this is extremely beneficial for the patients and families in terms of reducing PTSD complications. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us about this. I wanted to know if you had some concluding uh, thoughts for us or other thoughts you had that I didn't get a chance to uh, ask you about. I think really the concluding thing is if you can do diaries, do them because they're very valuable for patients and family members. And even if you can't do diaries for everybody, try and do your diaries on your longer stay patients. Sounds good. Well, I would like to um, address this to our audience. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. 
for the Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Ludwig Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altabates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.